The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University Chicago is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for this fall include the Poets of Presence Conference, featuring renowned poet Christian Wyman, a dialogue with the Sant'Egidio founder, Dr. Marco Impagliazzo, and their annual Tehard lecture given by Father Patty Gilger. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for saints and sinners, You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I'm so excited because we are back better than ever. Yeah, season season. seven, I think. Seven. That seems impossible. How, How long did Breaking Bad make it? That's a great question. I want to say seven or eight, maybe six or seven. We might be beating Breaking Bad. Uh, quick Google says Breaking Bad only made it five seasons. Oh, okay. So, uh, blowing past. Let's that. celebrate that <laughs> milestone. Um, so we beat Breaking Bad, and we are ready with a new season. We got a great conversation for our first episode. It's a familiar voice, I, I think, to listeners of the podcast. Yes, perhaps if you're a long, long, long time listener, the first voice you ever heard on Jesuitical as a guest, uh, Father James Martin, our very good friend and colleague, who has a new book out this week. That's right. He is out with Come Forth, The Promise of Jesus's Greatest Miracle, which was just published by Harper One. Uh, And in case you were confused about which miracle that is, uh, it is the raising of Lazarus. Yes. So in honor of Lazarus, we are drinking uh, the Corpse Reviver number two cocktail. Yeah, I I love that you found this. I think we were in our prep meeting and um, people furiously started typing like drinks to bring you back from the dead. (laughs) Um, And this is what we found. So uh, Ashley, you made this. What went into it today? It's I'm going to say I'm pretty proud of myself. I've had some flops in the past (laughs) in my drinks, but the Corpse Reviver is equal parts uh, London dry gin, Lillette Blanc, orange liqueur, and freshly squeezed lemon juice. And this, I really, this is a perfect end of summer cocktail, especially given the heat wave we are currently experiencing in New York. So hot New York. I'm just sweating (laughs) all the time now. Well, uh, cheers to a brand new season and a restful summer. All right. Cheers. And if you were just listening to us cheers and wondering what on earth is happening because you are maybe tuning into this show for the first time, uh, this is kind of what we do. So we're having these conversations about the church and the world. So each week we're going to talk to someone interesting. We're going to talk about Catholic news. We're going to talk about our own faith lives a little bit. But we're trying to do it in an environment that's, you know, a little more inviting. And so alcohol sometimes helps with that. Um, maybe you enjoy a nice cup of tea. So whatever it is, whatever puts you in the right space to have these kind of like honest and candid conversations, uh, we invite you to join us. Yes. This week in Signs of the Times, we're going to bring you some news from the summer that we didn't get to cover when we were on our break. Um, so first talking about World Youth Day uh, in Lisbon, Portugal, and then a more recent controversy about Pope Francis speaking pretty bluntly about his critics in the U.S. Catholic Church. But before we get to that, uh, how was summer? Any highlights? Oh, man. 
I had a pretty laid back summer, I've got to say, which I'm fine with. My big trip was in the spring to Jordan, which I talked about last season. But I had my normal week on a lake in South Carolina where you wake up, you walk to the lake, you walk back for lunch, you walk back to the lake, <laughs> you sit on a boat, I can and that the, was it. <laughs> I can do those vacations for like two days. And by day three, I'm like, please uh, get me out of here. Five days. Five days might be my limit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, on the other hand, did some globe trotting. I this did. Past I month. did. Um, I had a, I just, I just finished a vacation. So uh, uh, my wife and I, we spent some time in France, um, which I'm going to talk about a little bit in our face sharing segment as one friend speaks to another. Um, and then after that, we hopped across the pond to Ireland. Uh, where we met. More like a stream. Yeah, the pond, if the, if Atlantic is the pond. I think the English Channel is. Geography, not my strong suit. <laughs> um, we covered, we crossed a body of water to Ireland where we met up with my in-laws and we spent another week kind of bouncing around Ireland, which was just I, great. Uh, Guinness and one thing does you taste told better me, there. No, and something you told me that I appreciated is like, Guinness is not like a tourist gimmick in Ireland. No. Like the people you met love Guinness. They're proud of Guinness. They want to share their Guinness with you. Yeah. And you know what? I was happy to have it be shared with me. So um, it, yeah, all in all, great summer, but excited to be back at it. So without further ado. We have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So this summer, Pope Francis celebrated World Youth Day with a million and a half of his closest youth friends. The first week of August, hundreds of thousands of young people from all around the world flocked to Lisbon, Portugal for the 17th International World Youth Day. Yeah, so that's a lot of young people, which in the Catholic Church, we should say, is people, I think, up to age 35. So... I don't think I can go to the next one, but maybe you could. There's still time for me. <laughs> yeah. I would love to. I've never been to one. But um, wh- what are these What are these scenes like? What, what were the reports like from our colleagues? Oh, my gosh. It's, it was such a joyous occasion. There's so much Catholic news that we cover that's divisive or just plain depressing. And seeing hundreds of thousands of young people, um, you know, in adoration, doing the Stations of the Cross, uh, singing, dancing, everything. It's, it's just like such a reminder that... It's not all bad news in the church and that there are, the church is still young. The church is always young. A much smaller way I got a piece of this. Um, I went. I remember you being a teenager and going to the National Catholic Youth Conference, which I think was held in Indianapolis when I went. And it was the first time I'd seen like a stadium full of other Catholic people, not even young people. And it was just like, oh, this is way bigger than my one parish, right? And, you know, we had, uh, there were Catholics from all over the world, you know, some, a lot from Catholic majority or Christian majority countries and some places where there aren't really a lot of Catholics, you know, um, like Pope Francis just uh, got back from a trip to Mongolia where that's a very tiny. 1,500 Catholics. Total, total, (laughs) right? And so you can imagine if you're from a country like that, what what it means to see, you know, just vast crowds of people um, all doing your thing. Yeah, and Pope Francis had a very clear and consistent message throughout World Youth Day, which was basically everyone's welcome. The church is for everyone. There were these very memorable chants throughout the week where it was everyone, 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 todos, 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 which is everyone in Spanish and Portuguese. And so that was kind of like the animating spirit is that everyone is welcome no matter where you're from. Um, So really beautiful. But Catholic Twitter has a way of taking the most beautiful things and injecting controversy. Yes. So all the young people sort of just like camped overnight. Uh, before the closing mass that Pope Francis presided over. So there's just like this like field of young people sleeping. And then they were- Like sleeping bags on the ground in this huge field. (laughs) Yep, yep. And they were just greeted um, with the crack of dawn by sounds of techno house music. (laughs) Um, And so there was a a priest uh, 
wearing a collar uh, with headphones not dissimilar to the ones that you and I are wearing. Um, kind of spinning tables. Spinning tables. <laughs> yeah. Um, which not everybody was super into. Just to like give this context, this was not during the mass. This was you have hundreds of thousands, oh, maybe close to a million young people sleeping that you need to wake up in time for mass. So any adult who's ever dealt with children or your wife who's dealt with you, it's going to take a lot to get that many people up and excited for mass. It's so funny. You know, I, I'm, I'm not against it personally, but if someone tried to wake me up with techno music. <laughs> I will say, no, they, they eased into the techno. It was like there was some like more mellow music, but then it started to go into the, then the beat dropped. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> and, and some people were like, this is totally inappropriate, which is just, I don't know, pearl clutching and ridiculous, I suppose. Um, but I, I was fascinated to learn about this priest because this wasn't the first time he's done this. Um, evidently, uh, Father Gianpeotto uh, is uh, made quite a name for himself and for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by becoming the DJ priest. Um, he's got uh, just a ton, a ton of followers on social media doing this thing. Um, as of today, it's he's got 314,000 followers on TikTok, 294,000 followers on Instagram, and 171,000 followers on Facebook. So he is reaching tons of people with his techno Jesus message. Yeah, and the people clutching their pearls over this, like, oh, this guy's like in nightclubs, like with, you know, inappropriate things. No, he became a DJ specifically to do fundraising for his parish that had just had renovations and needed money. So I didn't know. I yeah. thought, no, I didn't know this was a fun fundraising avenue. Um, so maybe if you're in a parish council, you might want to suggest this to your own pastor um, as, a, as a way to raise funds for the church. Um, but yeah, overall, you and I are pro DJ priest. Um, yeah, I think so. At yeah. least not maybe not in the mass setting, but for this setting. In general, I'm anti-techno music. I just really <laughs> hate it. Uh, I think, you know, call me old fashioned, but I think instruments should be played. Agreed. Anti-techno, but pro-enculturation. And I think this is more popular in Europe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're very pro-World Youth Day, pro-enculturation, pro-DJ Priest. But we do want to touch on our next story, which is sort of like the news that happened after World Youth Day. Yes. As often happens uh, with Pope Francis and his foreign trips, the, the trip itself doesn't become the biggest headline. So a Portuguese Jesuit brother uh, was meeting with Pope Francis uh, at the end of World Youth Day, and he said he had spent some time in the U.S. and was really pained to see how many uh, Americans are critical of Pope Francis's leadership. So he put this question to Pope Francis, and the Pope had a pretty blunt response. I'm just going to read the, the quote. Those American groups you talk about so closed are isolating themselves. Instead of living by doctrine, by the true doctrine that always develops and bears fruit, they live by ideologies. When you abandon doctrine in life to replace it with an ideology, you have lost, you have lost as in war. So pretty strong statements about people sort of being afraid. Yeah. And like, so so as part of his response, he also talked about how, so to give context to those words, so he's talking about Catholics who he considers to be backward looking or reactionary. And he's, so he he talked about how the church's understanding of faith and morals develops and evolves in time and that he sees that there is a sector of the U.S. church that is opposed to that. America's Vatican correspondent Jerry O'Connell has reported in his story on this that the Pope does know who these cardinals and bishops and prominent lay Catholics who are critical of him in the U.S. are, but no names were given in his answer. So it was, it was a pretty strong but vague critique of the U.S. Catholic Church. Yeah, and so when I hear this, like, it, so a lot of people were just rankled by this, like, oh, wow, like, that's a pretty strong condemnation of an entire country, like a pretty large country's church. Um, 
the first question for me is, is this true, right? Like, is it true that the American Catholic Church is opposed to Pope Francis? And I, I kind of think that that's difficult to like really say. We have evidence that there's a lot of people who are in charge of some pretty big microphones and platforms that are not exactly thrilled with sort of the direction that Pope Francis has been moving the church in his 10 years uh, leading it. Um, I don't know that you're like, average American Catholic going to mass on Sunday even pays attention to most of the stuff. Um, so if they hear this as a headline, they're like, what? I don't, I'm not opposed to Pope Francis. What are, what are we talking about? Now, you know, as we're talking about this, there is a book currently being circulated by an uh, American cardinal, uh, Cardinal Raymond Burke, who wrote a foreword to a book that's being circulated in our country called The Synodal Process is a Pandora's Box. And, you know, the Synod on Synodality uh, is a pretty big priority of Pope Francis's. So, I mean, it's not totally inaccurate to say that people are suspicious and skeptical of this. Mm -hmm. I guess my response to that is Pope Francis, to his credit, has said that he welcomes criticism and he welcomes criticism that is face to face. He doesn't like people whispering behind his back. He, he welcomes people who confront him and tell him what's what. And so for him to make this strong critique of the church in the U.S. publicly, but without naming names, and especially as we're having the synod where Pope Francis has encouraged open dialogue and hearing from every corner of the church, I just don't think it's helpful to throw this out there and then have some Catholics questioning, like, is my voice welcome? Am, am I just like a, a reactionary <laughs> because I have some questions? And so going into the synod, I would just found it unhelpful. And our colleague J.D. Um, Long Garcia wrote a, a column for America titled um, Pope Francis's criticisms of reactionary U.S. Catholics are counterproductive in the context of the synod. And I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, this idea of people like being backward or wanting to look backward. I think in the American context, there's a lot of people that have gotten really into their Catholic faith because they see it as this like uh, unchanging institution holding strong in a world that is constantly in flux, right? And so it's not even like they want to look backwards. They just don't really want to like, you know, modernity has brought lots of not awesome things, you know, nuclear weapons, you know, being one of them. And so we see it as this in the United States. Some people here see it as this like institution standing against that. And I, I think if your framework is, oh, those backwards looking people, they just want to bring it back to the way it was in the Middle Ages. Um, I don't know, maybe those people are out there, but I think it's more likely that it's the former. But I mean, the fact of the matter is the Synod is going to introduce some changes that is going to make that are going to make people uncomfortable and um, change is always hard. And so I don't know, we're going to find a, have to find a way to talk to one another. All right. So coming up on the show, we are going to talk to Father James Martin about his new book about Lazarus. But before we do that, so you have some context, we wanted to do the, the short version of, of that reading from the gospel that you hear on the fifth Sunday of Lent. A reading from the Gospel of John. The sisters of Lazarus sent word to Jesus, saying, Master, the one who you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. 
When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise. Martha said, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. He became perturbed and deeply troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have done something so that this man would not have died? So Jesus, perturbed again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, Untie him and let him go. Joining us in studio is Father James Martin. Jim is the editor-at-large at America and the author of the new book, Come Forth, the Promise of Jesus' Greatest Miracle, just published by Harper One. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Jim. Thank you. Great to be back with you guys. Yeah, you are our first guest ever, like back when Jesus walked the earth six years ago, <laughs> and first guest of the new season. So we're thrilled to be chatting with you today about you. You've got another book. You really crank these things out. Thanks. And today's publication date, so it's a nice way to launch. Nice yes. to be with you and guys. And it's really beautiful. I love Thank this you. cover. Yeah, me too. I always say you can judge a book by its cover because <laughs> <laughs> it means that the publisher took uh, care with it. Yeah. So why has the story of Lazarus like fascinated you to such a point that you wanted to write uh, a pretty long book about it? When I was a teenager, I saw a Franco Zeffirelli's miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, which just blew me away. And it was a big deal back in the 70s and 80s. Which is it still hold up? I've never seen it. Oh, it's beautiful. And uh, so Zeffirelli, and it has wonderful, a wonderful cast. And it hews very close to the Gospels. Um, William Barclay, the great Scottish scripture scholar, helped um, uh, in the writing of it. It's really well done. And the scene of the raising of Lazarus just blew me away, more than the scene of the resurrection. It's just this very dramatic scene where he shouts in this very plummy British accent, Lazarus, come forth. And oh, Jesus is yeah, British? Oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> they, most of them are. And um, it just made an impression on me. And then when I started leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land, as you both know, um, 
we would bring people to Lazarus's tomb and they would go down into the tomb. And I would say, this is something I, I sort of imagined when I first went there, what do I want to leave behind in the tomb to kind of let die? And can I hear God's voice calling me out to new life? And when we would do that to people, they would sometimes come out in tears. And it was very powerful. So I thought, yeah, I've always wanted to do like a deep dive into a gospel story. And this one was, this is kind of my favorite gospel reading. So. Can you, uh, you talk in the book about going to the Holy Land and this expectation versus experience, which I think people who have been mm-hmm. sometimes are afraid that it's not going to live up yeah. to what you have have in mind. So can you talk about your first time uh, going into the tomb, what your expectation was and, and how it was, how you actually experienced it? Yeah, you know, actually, uh, Drew Christensen, our former editor, kind of encouraged me to go when I was writing my book, Jesus at Pilgrimage. And I resisted because I thought, oh, it's going to be all touristy and, you know, lots of like hotels and, you know, amusement park rides or something. That's what I thought. And I didn't even really know you could go to Lazarus's tomb. It's not a big site like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or Sea of Galilee. And I went and I and there was no one there that day. Uh, it was me and two Jesuits. And I just found it really powerful. And, you know, you go into this dark, dank, kind of uh, uh, sort of secluded place and you're by yourself and you have a lot to think about when you're down there. So it really made an impression on me. And I think even more importantly... For purposes of the book, it made an impression on a lot of the people that we went with. And again, that's the theme of the book, kind of leaving behind the things that you um, need to let die in your tomb to hear God's voice to come, saying to you, come out, come forth. Now, the the story itself is like is is quite dramatic. There's a mm-hmm. lot happening. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty long, and there really is, you know, as I was moving through your book, you know, you it, it felt very nation in the sense that you sort of break it up like almost phrase verse by verse, and like there's a lot to chew on um, just in those you know forty or so verses that happen there. There's a lot, and I thought a line by line reading almost would really be helpful because. I knew that there are different places that I wanted to pause and say, what do we um, what do we want to think about here in terms of Mary or what do we want to think about in terms of frustration? Or, you know, one of the big points is when Jesus doesn't come, you know, for mm-hmm. two or three days. It's So I, I think that there were kind of natural places where I would pause and say this would be a good place for kind of a spiritual reflection. But you're right. I mean, you could I'm sure you could write a whole book on just one line. I mean, there it's so rich. Uh, and the characters, I mean, Martha and Mary and Lazarus and Jesus. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, even though Lazarus doesn't say anything. Uh, <laughs> well, that's Martha, a remarkable kind of. It is of, remarkable. Right? A lot of people some people have speculated that maybe he was somehow disabled, mm. um, which is why he doesn't speak mm. and perhaps why he's living with his two unmarried sisters. Um so I I talk a lot about the you know, a little bit of uh, imaginative, um, you know, reading into the story, um, which scripture scholars don't always like because it's very speculative. But, you know, these are real people. And so it, it's worth to ask, you know, what were their lives like? So you were with these characters for a couple uh, yeah. of years, I imagine. Yeah. And I've heard novelists, like they often, mm-hmm. you know, they these become real people mm-hmm. in their lives. And so did you ever get sick of them or do you miss them now that you're done with the book? Like what's your relationship? With yeah, them like? um, I, I got to, I feel like I got to know them better. And I read so much about, um, about the story and about Martha and, you know, separately Martha and Mary, that it was... Um, it was more like getting to know them better, and um, I I don't get sick of the story. That's a it's 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 funny you should say that because on my retreat last year, my retreat director said, and I think he forgot I was working on it. He said, now, you know, as you're 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 ending your retreat, I'd like you to spend time with Lazarus. <laughs> I just said, oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, but even then, I wasn't tired of yeah. it because I think you know the Bible is the living word, and it always something always 
uh, is new for you to find there. I, I especially really, I especially enjoyed getting to know Martha and Mary. That was uh, that was kind of a secondary uh, sort of topic of research, and there's so much about. I know them. we're not supposed to pit them against each other, but we are who do not. you like more? <laughs> I know. Well, you know, one of the things I find interesting is that their characters in uh, the story that probably people know just as well, where um, Jesus comes to their house and Martha complains that her sister isn't working hard enough, by the way, doing, as I say in the book, diaconia. Ashley and I have the same dynamic. Yeah, right. <laughs> who's, who's the Martha and who's the Mary? <laughs> I'm, not the one that, I'm not the one working mm-hmm. hard enough. <laughs> but they're, they're characters. So Martha's the active one, Mary's the contemplative one in Luke. And in John 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus, Martha, Martha is likewise active. She's the, she's the one that runs out and sees Jesus first while Mary stays behind. I just thought that was fascinating. Between two gospels, you see their characters being more or less congruent. So I love that. I, I, I love getting to know both of them. They're pretty amazing. And Martha's just so unbelievably blunt. Yeah, I wanna, go, I wanna get back to that. But sure. just fundamentally, you know, did this actually happen? Because this only occurs in John's gospel. And if you mm-hmm. think that Jesus did something like raise someone from the dead, raise his friend from the dead. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't this be in the other three gospels? Yeah, and so I go through the book and talk about why um, scripture scholars believe that this happened. There's kind of a, a core memory uh, of this story. And you know what, Zach, uh, that used to bother me a lot when I was, a, I would say a little boy and also a teenager, like, well, maybe it's made up because it's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But um, one of the things that I discovered uh, was that those gospel stories, the, the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they already have stories of people being raised from the dead, uh, Jairus' daughter and um, uh, the, the son of the widow of Nain. And their gospels are more or less centered on Galilee, which is where John's gospel is on Judea, which is in the south. So in other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke probably felt, we already have stories of Jesus raising people from the dead. We don't need another one. And besides, it's in Judea. And then one scholar said that you know, maybe they didn't know the whole story, the kind of, as one scholar said, the great theological masterpiece um, that is the story of the raising of Lazarus. So so that explains why it's not in the Gospels. And yet, to go a little deeper, uh, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus, right? Where Lazarus is the poor person who dies and comes back. I won't retell the whole parable. And, you know, New Testament scholars say this is the only parable in all the Gospels where a character has a name, Lazarus, right? And so you have in Luke a story about a man named Lazarus coming back from the dead. So there is that kind of connection there, which I just find fascinating. I did want to ask because you mentioned that there are other um, stories where Jesus raises someone from the dead, so, but but you call this the greatest miracle. Mm-hmm. So why, what sets this mm-hmm. one apart? Well, I think it's kind of traditionally called Jesus's greatest miracle. In John's gospel, it's the summit of the the, the, the book of signs, his book of, of miracles, basically the first part of uh, John's gospel. But if you think about it, um, it's, it's awful to compare miracles. I, I say in the book, it's kind of funny, like there's this competition between his miracles, you know, yeah, which, is, uh, which is the best. Th- I was going to go, I thought when I heard the title of this book, I thought it was going to be about Cana because <laughs> there was wine at that point. <laughs> you one. like wine, yeah, I know yeah, that, so. right. Um, but, uh, you know, in the story of uh, the raising of the daughter of Jairus, you, you might remember she's just, some people think she's just asleep. And if she's died, she's just died, right? So there's a little bit of um, kind of confusion what, what Jesus is doing there. And then the story of the son of the widow of Nain, which is a, a town in Galilee. Jesus sees uh, the, wed- the, the funeral procession and the, the man has not yet been buried. In Lazarus's case, he's buried. And Jesus even says, it's very blunt. Um, Thomas says, oh, he is just asleep. And 
Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, right? And one of the reasons I think he waits a couple of days, which is a little bit of a spoiler alert, is that uh, the Jewish people at the time thought that uh, the soul hovered around the body for a couple of days. And so in other words, he, I think, is sort of, uh, he, one of the reasons that he might be waiting is to assure people, look, this guy's dead. And when I raise this person, you will know I'm raising someone from the dead. So so there's, so there's, I think that's one reason you could say it's his greatest miracle. And what's your approach of writing, and this happened, I think, in Jesus' pilgrimage too, is a lot of like consulting scripture scholarship, mm -hmm. but also not being afraid of speculation mm -hmm. or imagination. How do you integrate those two things in a healthy way? Because I find that most people are either totally one or the other. Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking that question. I try to popularize a lot of like stuff that's in commentaries. And I also, as I say in the book, I emailed, you know, these these people, Amy Jill Levine, Michael Pepper, uh, Francis Maloney, Ben Witherington. These are really top scripture scholars. And what I try to do in the book is say, look, here's the discussion that's going around, you know, about this topic. But, you know, a, a lot of cases we don't know. We can't know. And so it's still okay to speculate. So, for example, um, why are Mary and Martha and Lazarus celibate, right? Why do they seem to be unmarried, right? You know, there's lots of scripture scholars who can speculate about that. But in the end, we don't know, right? So I think it's okay in some places to use your imagination. But I, I do think it's important to kind of be a scholarly believer, right? Someone who understands the scholarship uh, and, you know, and, and believes in the story and can still kind of enter into it imaginatively. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of my... A friend of mine called me a Bible nerd, my Bible nerd side, but also my Jesuit side, which, you know, encourages imaginative contemplation. I think a lot of Catholics are a little bit like afraid to go too deep into the scho mm -hmm. scholarship because yeah. it could it could challenge yep. their conception of something. Um, and even in your book, I, I appreciated that you you put out these ideas and you didn't necessarily resolve unreconcilable perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that tension can sometimes be uncomfortable for Catholics. Or like I was really uncomfortable at the part where you talk about Jesus being like angry mm. at one point, it, yeah. you know, it, frustrated yeah. with everybody. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I assumed he was just grieving this whole time. Mm -hmm. But then there's this, I mean, the Greek seems much closer that he's- He's angry. He's angry. Yeah. And I'm like, why would Jesus be angry here? That throws off my entire- way I thought about this. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, to Ashley's question, uh, we don't have to be afraid of scholarship. And in fact, the scholarship, the, the great New Testament scholars that we have help us to understand these stories better. So for example, what were Jewish burial practices like at the time? And if you know that the Jewish people thought that the soul hovered around the body, you say, oh, okay, now I get why Jesus might have delayed. And you would not know that from just reading the story. Uh, you know, it's funny to your point, Zach, about Jesus being, as I say in the book, uh, angry when he comes to the tomb. It's really shocking, and it was shocking for me to read it. So the, I think the shortest verse in the Bible, depending on your translation, is Jesus wept, right? And everyone loves that. Jesus weeps for his friend Lazarus. He's so human. But when you read the Greek, uh, it's pretty inescapable that one of the reasons he seems to be weeping is out of frustration and anger um, mm -hmm. at their lack of faith. You're, you're, you're pointing out two things that Catholics are uncomfortable with. Uh, biblical scholarship sometimes, you know, and just knowing the Bible, and then Jesus's humanity. So mm -hmm. both of those things need to really be looked at here, while, while at the same time believing, right, right, in the story and in Jesus. Um, would you say from the beginning, like this is the baseline? Like you're writing this from a perspective? Yeah, perspective like I believe. Belief. Yeah, yeah. I needed to say it at the beginning because I said we're going to go into some scholarship and weigh some things, but I need to tell you, I think this story really happened, and not like oh, it happened in a deep sense of truth. And no, I mean it really happened. Like you know, when you were, if you were in Bethany on that day, two thousand years ago, you would have more or less seen 
what, what the story tells. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. I want to get to uh, some of the themes that you draw out that you know we could consider for our own lives. Um, the first being maybe maybe this is a story about friendship, um, which is fascinating on several different levels. Um, first, that it's clear that these are Jesus's friends; they're not his apostles, mm-hmm. uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, mm-hmm. um, which is just that blew my mind mm-hmm. the first time I that was pointed out to me because um, I think you mentioned it's Gerhard Lofink. That's right. This yeah. is his insight that not everybody was around Jesus was an apostle. Right, and that kind of blew my mind when I read it. It's in his book Jesus of Nazareth, which is so good, and you can see it. They're not they're not following him around. Um, they're they're what you might call resident disciples. He calls them people who stay at home. But they're his friends. He kind of chills out with them when he goes to their house in Bethany. And I think one of the most moving parts of the story is what the sisters call Lazarus when they send word to Jesus that their brother is ill. They, say, they don't say, Lazarus, your friend. They don't say, Lazarus, your disciple. They don't say, Lazarus, your our brother. They don't even say what you would expect someone in the New Testament to say, Lazarus of Bethany is ill. They say, he whom you love. The Greek is hon philes, which I just love. He whom you love is ill. It's so beautiful, and that—that's friends, you know. Though that's that's that kind of deep friendship that Jesus had, and it, it reminds us of our need to be friends with God. By the way, an interesting thing that I read so many books on Lazarus, I can't remember where I, where I got this from. I mean, it's actually Augustine that they don't even have to say you, we want you to come, which mm. I think is very beautiful. They just say he he whom you love is ill, and they leave it in his hands, which is really beautiful, and and I think a really profound spiritual lesson. Like this is going on, Lord. You know, I'll leave it up to you to do what you want to do. Another aspect of that friendship that you point out is uh, Martha's bluntness when mm-hmm. talking to Jesus, which I thought was really interesting. Like she she reprimands him for mm-hmm. not coming sooner, mm-hmm. even though she didn't tell him to come. <laughs> yeah, she reprimands him uh, in Luke's gospel. She gets mad that her sister is not helping. And, and she says probably the strongest words anyone says to Jesus in the gospels, tell her to help me. I mean, who <laughs> talks to Jesus like that? <laughs> And then as you say, Ashley, um, when Jesus comes to Bethany, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which a lot of people look at, and it could be a kind of profession of faith, like I believe that you are you, know, you are the life giver. But it's pretty cutting. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty cutting. And then Mary says the exact same thing, Mary, Mary staying back in the house. And I can imagine, the imaginative part of me thought of them saying that almost like over and over, if Jesus had been here, if Jesus had been here, and they both kind of blurted out. And so... I find it truly, I find it very moving that she um, she believes in him, she loves him, she calls him Lord, 
but she's also, as we all get, you know, frustrated with Jesus or with God. You know, if you had been here, it's just a great scene. I just, I love Martha. I love her. I love and the, Mary. And too. the lesson for us is that we too can be blunt with God in our prayer. Blunt with God and God can take it just like Jesus can take it and that God's going to take that prayer and do something with it, you know, and even the other, the other blunt thing she says, which I love is when Jesus says, take away this stone, she says, Lord, there will be a stench. <laughs> and you just think she's, it works in so many different levels. Like to, to your point, she's very blunt. Uh, she's very practical. Yeah, like don't. Um, why would we do that? Yeah, gonna... and what are you? What are you doing? This, this is this is not the way things work. And you know, Martha only has a couple scenes in the Gospels, but boy, she shines through. You know, and that's what people say. You know, how can you be sure that she lived? I mean, come on, this is this is a real strong personality coming through in the Gospel story. You offer the. Uh... Uh, King James translation mm-hmm. of he already he hath already stinketh he stinketh yeah he stinketh now yeah for five for four days was yeah beautiful mm-hmm. getting back to uh, Jesus weeping right depending mm-hmm. as you said depending on your translation this is like the shortest verse in the Bible um, so it's resonated with a lot of people but it it shows like a a humanity mm-hmm. to to Jesus and I think that's why so many people are attracted to it and also who doesn't have an experience of of weeping sure. when a loved one sure. dies. Um, why do you think um, we're so drawn to that? At the same time, we're so uncomfortable with the idea of like a human being a miracle worker. You know, I, probably for the same reason that the disciples were. It's very hard to get our minds around. Um, who who then is this who, you know, who stills the wind and the waves, they, the disciples at the storm at sea. And, you know, I've, we have never seen anything like this. Uh, so I think it's, you know, for, for the Jewish people who were used to seeing God as other, as profoundly different, right? Maybe the burning bush, but, you know, in a cloud and not incarnated, it was difficult. It's still difficult for us. I think Catholics have a hard time with that. We're so used to thinking of our Lord and our Lord and Savior and the resurrected one, and right? I mean, that is all part of who Jesus is. But when we see gospel stories where, as you say, uh, he gets frustrated, he cries, um, he loses his temper, uh, he curses a fig tree, right? He calls the the Syrophoenician woman and her people a do- dogs. Um, it's uncomfortable um, because we're just we're just not used to it. And I think, you know, in a way, for some reason, Catholics have been told it's 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 in a way wrong or somehow denigrating to think of Jesus like that. But he's human, right? He is fully human. I mean, he's fully divine as well. I think it's just a Catholic thing. And it we becomes just... like this rote thing, like from the Baltimore Catechism mm-hmm. or something where you're like, oh, divine, two natures. Yeah. and But with that <clears throat> line specifically, you have something about how, you know, when um, Jesus weeps, yes, he's fully human, but he's also fully divine. He's, he's and fully when divine. he raises Lazarus, yeah. he's, yes, fully divine, That's but right. also fully human. Which yeah. Is... And I think, uh, I don't know where I got this, but I, I put it in the Jesus book that when he's sawing a piece of wood in the carpenter shop in Nazareth, he's God. And when he's raising the dead he's a man it's really it's and look it's i mean it's a mystery (laughs) and we're never going to get our heads around it but uh i think that uh to think of him uh as just divine really takes well i mean takes a huge part of him away and he makes it makes him more um remote from us one part of the story that has always kind of troubled me um and it has been fodder for a lot of artists over the centuries is that it seems kind of cruel that Jesus brings back Lazarus just so that he's going to die again. Um, what makes this resurrection, like, I mean, distinct 
Is it correct to call it a resurrection in comparison to Jesus's? Yeah, I've had these discussions with all these scholars. I think they they say raising and they reserve resurrection for for Jesus. Um, yeah, he dies. I mean, he dies again. And most scripture scholars feel that he was executed, right? Um, because they talk about how people were stirred up by this. And and in John's gospel, here's something interesting. I don't think I put this in the book, that the that the reception Jesus gets in John's gospel on Palm Sunday only makes sense with Lazarus's raising. Like this, like look who look who this is, right? But yeah, he does die. He's he's not Jesus, right? He's not he's not the Son of God. One of the great um, kind of uh, mirror images that I love that Raymond Brown pointed out, who's a New Testament scholar, that when Lazarus comes out, uh, he's wearing what's his grave cloths or grave clothes, and what's called a sudarion, a head covering, like a napkin. Sometimes people say so, like a cloth around your head. When Lazarus comes out, he's wearing his right. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, if you remember on Easter Sunday, his grave claws and his sudarion are found rolled up. He's made his bed. He has, he has, <laughs> he, he has made his bed. He will not need his any longer, which I find very powerful. Mm. So Jesus is done with the grave claws and the sudarion. Lazarus is going to need his again. He's, he's restored back to regular, ordinary life. The next thing, the next time we see him, he's eating a dinner, yeah. which I love. Um, well, that's it, another thing because we actually see, or we, yeah, the. Mm -hmm disciples actually saw Lazarus mm -hmm. like raised from like come mm -hmm. out of the tomb and with mm -hmm. Jesus we don't have that that's a good point I never that's a really interesting point I should have put that in the book <laughs> so that'll be in the second edition no yeah that's a really interesting point you're right they see that but they don't no one sees Jesus interestingly Lazarus I mean uh, some people think he's the beloved disciple um, I talk about that in the book uh, and if he is that means that when he looks into the tomb and sees the grave cloths rolled up and the sedarian rolled up that's one of the reasons he's able to believe because it's happened to him. It does seem like the Eastern Church has held on to the mm -hmm. tradition of Lazarus a lot mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. um, you just kind of, in your book, it comes comes up a lot more. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, I mean, there were traditions of Lazarus going to Cyprus. Uh, and so I think that that kind of centers the devotion there. But one of the things I discovered in the, in the research, which kind of blew me away, I was talking to this um, Eastern Orthodox scholar, and she said, well, you do know about Lazarus Saturday, don't you? And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> that the Saturday before, I guess it's before Palm Sunday, is called Lazarus Saturday in a lot of places. And they have these special hymns, and they have these little cakes, which I've eaten, called Lazarakia, which little Lazaruses. <laughs> they are literally, I was going to put a picture of one of them in the book. Um, they are little men, like wrapped in little, oh, oh yeah, wrapped in little, like, uh, little mummy cookies mm -hmm, <laughs> with little clove eyes. Wow. And uh, I, you may remember, you may know Jill Caldwell, who goes on our pilgrimages. She made some for me and, and sent them to me. And they're kind of like scones almost. And anyway, a croissant kind of looks like a croissant. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, so yeah. So in the East, it, there's, there, there's more devotion to who they call St. Lazarus, which is the first time I had noticed that was in the Holy Land. I said, yeah. the Church of St. Lazarus. Where are there St. Lazarus churches in the United States? No. So. For people today who like they're like, willing to accept that mm -hmm. this actually happened, but you know we're not going to be raised from the dead Correct. in this life um, until the <laughs> final yes, coming. Right. Um, so thinking about how this applies to them, you, you talk about you know the things you mentioned before, the things that we need to live in the tomb. So can you can you unpack that? Yeah, please? thanks for asking about that because I feel like we've been all Bible nerds for the last <laughs> couple of minutes. Yeah, the point of the book is that um, all of us have things that keep us bound or unfree whether it's a, an attachment or a, a grudge or some disappointment or even some unhealthy pattern of behavior, something that we do that is just not letting us be free. 
and that God calls to each of us and asks us to leave it behind in the tomb. You know, people talk about that in terms of dying to self. So the book asks, uh, what in you needs to die in order that you can live, right? And hear God calling you to come forth. And so you're right, Ashley, none of us are going to be. Jesus is not going to stand at anybody's tomb and raise us from the dead in the same way that he did for Lazarus. But God does call to us every day and say, come forth, leave behind the things that are um, that are not helpful and are kind of keeping you bound and leave them behind in the tomb, so to speak, and come out, come forth. That, that conversion is this thing, it, this call mm-hmm. that happens all, all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Every day. And I appreciate that you acknowledge in the book that this is not an easy process, which mm-hmm. like I find in my own life to be so frustrating. Oh. Where you see this thing, you're like, I know this is bad. Uh, yeah. I know there's something better on the other side, but like I can't get there. <laughs> no, that's totally right. And it takes time. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I remember on retreat once I said same thing to my retreat director and I said, I want to let go of this and I know where I need to go, but I can't do it. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, do you see that tree outside? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cheesy already. <laughs> and I said, yes, it was, it was like August. I was doing my retreat. He said, what color is it? And I said, green. And he said, have you seen it in the fall? And I said, yes. What color is it? Red. He says, no one sees the change. And I was like, oh. Okay, so it is, it's a gradual process, and it is not as dramatic as it is with Lazarus, and it, sometimes we have to do it over and over and over. But I think part of it, actually, is trusting in who is calling you. So it's not just something that you learned in therapy, which is important. It's not just something you mm. had an insight about yourself, which is super important. It's not something a friend told you. It's, you know, and all those things are important. It's God calling you. It's God calling you from that life of sort of being bound into freedom, and I think that helps us trust you know, so I have those same situations too. And you think, oh my gosh, am I ever going to change? So it's continuing to listen to that voice and knowing the voice because Lazarus only comes forth because he knows the, who knows who's calling him. And there's a beautiful parallel there with um, Mary Magdalene on mm. the resurrection where she mm-hmm. recognizes him by his mm-hmm. voice. And I think that's such a beautiful, like intimate detail. Yeah. And they're both very close. I mean, Jesus says to her, Mariam, I mean, they preserve the Aramaic and, uh, you know, calls to his friend whom he loved. They're two people that I think he loved very much. And, uh, you know, part of it is recognizing Jesus's voice in our life. I mean, that's discernment. So actually, when you were talking about, you know, the, 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 the invitation, you recognize that as coming from God and you try. And so therefore you trust it. So it's not just something that popped in your mind. So the believer kind of comes to hear God's voice, recognize God's voice, and then is able to respond to God's voice, you know, as, as Mary Magdalene and, and Lazarus were. Jim, congratulations on the book once again, and thank you for coming on the show. But before we let you go, we have one final question that you've answered a few times for us, but we'll make you come up with a fresh answer. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, uh, Catholic or not, uh, risen or not, who would it be <laughs> and why? You know, it's funny. I, I should have known that you were going to ask me that, but... Uh, I would say probably, I would say Greg Boyle. Greg Boyle, who works with Homeboys Industries and works with uh, gang members and former gang members. He's, he's alive, of course, and I hope he stays alive for a long time. I really do think, I, I've known a lot of saints. Can I actually say another one too? Can sure, I get yeah. two? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the Jesuit who I know and knew, who I really do think that you could start a canonization process for would be uh, Dan Harrington, this great scripture scholar who I talk about in my book. I just think he, I don't think I ever saw him do anything mean. He was completely devoted to the gospels and just so kind. I really do think that you could start a process for him. So yeah, I'd say Greg and Dan. Well, we've got a groundswell of support with this show, so we'll get that started. 
All right. So Greg and Dan, thanks so there much. There we go. Again, the book is Come Forth, The Promise of Jesus's Greatest Miracle. You can get it wherever you purchase your favorite books. And there's an excerpt on America Magazine's website that we will link to in the show notes. And if you like listening to Jim, yes. you did the audio. <laughs> yes, I did the audio. All, I think it's 12 hours all of it. All 12 so. hours. So if you got some long drives, Jesuit oh, only yeah. comes out yeah. once a week. Long runs, right. Yeah, <laughs> yep. no, th- um, yeah so it's in print, um, ebook, and audio. I'm really grateful to be on. Thanks. This is a really nice conversation. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Thanks Jim. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure. All these dried up All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of the show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. And I really mean it this time because it's, you know, been summer break, so we have a few announcements. (laughs) Yes. First of all, if you enjoyed our conversation with Father James Martin, uh, you're going to want to hear our bonus segment, which is only available to Patreon supporters. We get into this really fascinating question about whether Lazarus was the beloved disciple or not. Yeah. So uh, I always thought the beloved disciple was John, which I think most people think. But evidently, there is this fascinating debate in the uh, scripture scholar community that it might have been Lazarus. And I'm spoiler alert. I came away pretty convinced. Yeah, I came away from the book thinking this was a pretty compelling argument. And Father Martin has his own opinions, but he he gives both sides of the argument a a fair shake. Uh, So if you want to hear that bonus conversation, you need to become a Patreon subscriber, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash americamedia. And speaking of Patreon supporters, uh, wanted to give a huge thank you to people that signed up over the summer. Um, so they were able to get access to our secret Patreon feed where we post all of our bonus episodes. So uh, they got access to our conversation with J.D. Long Garcia and Greg Hillis about baseball, the pitch clock, uh, what the Catholic Church could learn from Major League Baseball trying to change an institution. So wanted to give a huge thank you to the following people. Amanda Breshkovitz, Susan Detrimont, Michael Schreiber, Christian, Susan Hall, Anthony Ahern, Greg Hillis, Sarah Hunt, and Phil Okerlund. Yes. So a huge thank you to you all of our Patreon supporters. If you want to join that community, you can go to patreon.com slash americamedia. And if you join them, you'll be eligible for another perk we've got coming up. We have three signed copies of Father Martin's new book, which is, again, Come Forth, The Promise of Jesus' Greatest Miracle, to give away. And if you sign up before Wednesday, September 20th, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a signed copy of Father Martin's new book. And finally, uh, Jesuitical wants to do some more live events, meet people in person. Um, and if that's something you, as a part of a parish community or a school or a diocese or just a uh, Local Catholic group, we want to come see you. Yeah, we are looking to take the show on the road, as they say. Maybe maybe host a dinner party at your house. We'll come. We'll show up. Maybe a wedding. I would love to have Jesuitical get invited to a wedding. Um, but, you know, we've got a few events already in the works. We're definitely going to announce those on the podcast. So if we're in your neck of the woods, we'd love to come see you. But please reach out, if you, as Ashley said, if you've got a group that um, you, you could help organize something like this. Again, reach out to us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. 
And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And Zach, I I hear you found God in France. Yes, I did. Uh, In spite of the French Revolution trying to destroy every beautiful piece of Catholic art in France, uh, I did manage to find God there. So um, Amanda and I were sort of walking around Paris and we kind of wandered into this side street um, where I noticed there was the shrine to the Miraculous Medal. And I was like, oh, I'm familiar with the Miraculous Medal. Didn't realize there was a shrine there. Um, let's go check it out. So wander in. And I, we just started learning about uh, St. Catherine Labre, who is someone I was not familiar with before this. Um, but she has this amazing story. So Catherine Labre was this uh, young girl, really, from the French countryside, born into a very poor family, um, who eventually joins the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul, and while she's in the Vishit, has this vision of Mary, a child calling her to the chapel where uh, Mary appears to her um, and basically kind of gives her this message uh, that she wants this uh, medal designed. It's this medal, which I'm sure you've seen. Uh, it says around the frame, oh, Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. And there's like rays of light coming out of her hands and basically Mary tells her to not tell anybody except her confessor. So that's what Catherine does. She tells her her confessor priest about this um and basically she kind of is watched from then on because if someone tells you that they've seen visions of mary you they're either really holy or really crazy and so catherine is watched and eventually the priest then brings it to the archbishop without uh revealing catherine's identity um gets approval to make this medal the medal is a huge hit it's sort of it spreads like wildfire but catherine's identity kind of remains a secret and this is where the story i've i really connected with she after she takes vows in the vishit ends she is sort of just like sent to the french countryside and for the next 40 years until she dies she basically lives out her life um caring for the elderly and the dying um and really her identity is like the originator of the miraculous medal isn't really known until it seems like the maybe the last year of her life the secret's kind of up but i was just so struck by this because being in media people are always trying to like both make a name for themselves and in catholic media people are trying to make a name for themselves and kind of god at the same time and it sometimes feels a little gross um but i think anytime we do any act of good, we, we struggle with this tension of, are we drawing attention to ourselves or to the act itself, which is like ultimately like pointing attention to God and the way that he loves us. And for me to see this like work of holiness where this amazing thing happens to her and to be for her to be totally comfortable with, surely she would have known like this devotion was super popular and the temptation to be like, uh, by the way, Mary talked to me. Uh, I'm the one who Uh, came up with that, Uh, must have been strong. And for her to just sort of live out her life in the simple, small acts of love and charity, I I was very moved by it. As someone who works in in media and journalism, I feel like she should be the patron saint of like proofreaders Mm. (laughs) who are all their work is behind the scene, proofreaders, copy editors, editors in general. Now I'm like doing the opposite of what you're like, all of that work that I do. People should pay more attention to is what you're saying. <laughs> no, I'm saying I should secretly enjoy it. No, but no, I, I I do think this is more applicable. I mean, applicable beyond media journalism. Yeah. Like we all 
we all have parts of our lives where it's kind of the thankless tasks and those can be holy too and um, they don't need to be seen. That, yeah, that is a pretty consistent message in the gospel. Yeah, and luckily Catherine Labre is not secret anymore. She's a saint, so people <laughs> I think know about her, even if I did not. So uh, I'm, I, I, I came away from France with a new devotion to St. Catherine Labre. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Christine Lenahan, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on x.com at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.